Amen. Thank you, Michelle. Well, hey, RCC family, it's good to be with you. Um, welcome, man. What a great Husker weekend, right? The football team won, the volleyball team won, and Iowa lost, right? So I always think after a good Husker weekend like this that we're going to have a fuller service because a lot of prayers were answered um, yesterday. God, please don't let us fall apart in the fourth quarter. Um, So I'm glad that all of you are here. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors, and I have the privilege of sharing a message with us today. So last week, Anthony, our lead pastor, he concluded our Rooted message series, which was just excellent, wasn't it? And so next week, Anthony is going to launch us into a brand new sermon series based on our values, our RCC core values, so don't miss that. But this week kind of sits in the middle, a bit of a, of a one-off, and so I asked Anthony if he wanted me to cover anything specific or uh, if he had a chapter and verse in mind, and he told me to go where the Lord leads, which is dangerous. And so I've been praying that God would show me what he wanted to share today, and over and again, contentment and Philippians 4 kept surfacing contentment? Like, really, God? Um, What else do you want me to share? Do you have a plan B? And I fought it, and I sort of started, and I stopped, and I I really wrestled, and I thought about changing numerous times, but here we are. So so what's the issue? Why why wrestle with this uh, so much? Well, well, first off, I think it seems like contentment is, is a really big issue that probably can't be adequately handled in in one message, but more significantly and probably personally more importantly, I really struggle with contentment. I struggle with it, and I know I'm not supposed to. I know. I, I, I know all of these great ways to battle discontentment. I've read a lot about it. I've talked to a lot of wise people. I've, I've even gained some experience over the years, and yet... I still fall short in this area. I have not mastered contentment. And maybe you're with me. Uh, Maybe I'm not alone in this struggle. And so today we're going to look at three enemies of contentment. And, And these are three common problems. They're not the only three, but these are three major issues that prevent our contentment. And then after that, we're going to look at Paul's solution in the book of Philippians. And he calls it the secret of contentment at the end of chapter 4. Are you with me? Are you intrigued? All right, let's jump in. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's controversial to say that we live in a time period today that actively wages war against contentment. And by contentment, I mean this internal sense of deep satisfaction. It's, it's gratitude that doesn't depend on circumstances. And, and so in recent decades, I think you'd agree that the pace of life has picked up. It has sped up. And, and so there was actually a time when we used to have to wait more than two days for a package to show up at our door, right? Uh, there was a time when we used to have to wait um, a minute or longer for our dial-up connection to give us access to our AOL Instant Messenger. And if you were born in the 90s or later, you have no idea how easy your life is. But, but now we exist in kind of this rushed and hurried space. It's, it's an existence that's never really settled or slowed down. And we use these phrases like 
I can't wait. I literally can't even wait for this future thing to happen. We can't wait. We're not conditioned to allow our minds to rest or to be satisfied with whatever our present state is. Whatever is happening right now seems to be less interesting or or less important or less exciting or whatever than what we think is going to be happening in the future. So even though we can't physically move forward in time, we can only exist in our own place and space and time, we kind of actively seek to pull these future events a little bit closer to us. So when I can't wait for this future thing to happen, it's sort of like I'm I'm reaching forward in time and and I'm wanting to grab that event a little bit and and kind of bask in the happiness that I think this future event is going to give me. And, And we use these terms like, pleasure stacking, where we're seeking to kind of overload our senses with food and entertainment and and wealth and power and and vacations and whatever else our minds crave. Uh, But but we we don't want to wait for it. We literally can't wait for it. And so we grab as much as we can today in the present, but then we're constantly looking to the future for more. I can't wait for this to happen. I can't wait for that. I can't wait for this. And, and have you ever planned an exciting vacation and then you kind of experience the can't wait vortex that, that sucks the rest and the joy out of that time? So, so you, you book the space that you're going to stay, you research all the things you want to do, you look up the restaurants you want to enjoy, and then you make these plans and, and you mark it on your calendar. And then what do you do? You start to kind of reach forward and think, man, I can't wait until we get into our Airbnb or our hotel. And then when you get into the hotel, you're still not quite satisfied there. And so you, you feel stuck a little bit in this can't wait vortex. And you think, oh man, I can't wait until we have breakfast at this amazing breakfast place. And then literally while you're having breakfast, your mind wanders to, I can't wait till we get to eat lunch at this local spot. And then you can't wait to get on the beach or you can't wait to go on a mountain trail or get on a jet ski or sit on a deck and drink a glass of iced tea or go to a show. And, and all the while, we keep reaching forward kind of in time wishing we were doing the next thing, trying to, trying to soak up some of the future happiness instead of being where we are. We're always hoping we can steal this future happiness and stack it to our current state of being. And then our vacation ends. And if we're not careful, this can't wait vortex can sort of suck the life out of our vacation to where when we come back, we feel like we need another one. And then we come back and we say, I can't wait till I can go on my next vacation. I can't wait till the next event. And this can't wait vortex, it does this significant damage to our state of contentment. And it's just how we live, right? There's always a next, there's never a now. There's always a next, there is never a now. The, the can't wait mentality is the first enemy of contentment. So not only are we trying to reach into the future and grab whatever happiness we think exists there, we're also trying to push the present behind us as fast as possible, especially if we don't like the current moment we're living in. So um, to my shame, I remember when our youngest was born, and instead of just loving each day with him, I started to think, I can't wait until he can sleep through the night. Man, I can't wait until he stops screaming. I can't wait until he's a little more self-sufficient. And then what happens when we finally get to this place and space and time that 
we literally couldn't wait to get to. Are we satisfied when we get there? We couldn't wait to get there, and now what? Sometimes I think we, we look at life like a, like a set of levels or stairs, and so we assign values to each of these levels. So maybe level one happiness is graduating from high school. Level two ha- happiness is getting into the right school. Level three happiness is getting your dream job. Level four happiness might be finding the right person. Level five happiness is getting a house. Level six happiness is having 2.5 kids. Although at RCC, that average might be double. Um, And each time we think that this next level, when I get there, that's going to be it. Level four, that's going to be it for me. I'll be content when I I reach that point. But, But the excitement eventually wears off, right? And we start to look forward to the next thing. There have been studies that have been done to determine how long the happiness for these big life events actually last. And several are listed listed in this book called Stumbling into Happiness. And how long does happiness last after the big promotion or after we get engaged or after we get a new house? The average they found in these studies is three months. Some, some events have longer happiness times than others, but you have an average of three months to enjoy this level of happiness before you start thinking about the next. And it might not even be that long. And so where do all of these stairs that we are climbing, where do they all lead to, these levels of happiness? Retirement, right? We save our entire lives so we can finally reach a point where we achieve ultimate levels of satisfaction. Surely I'm going to be content once I retire. I can't wait until I retire. Our always next, never now mentality, it robs us of contentment. There's another significant obstacle that prevents contentment, and that is comparison. Now, this has been happening from the beginning. Um, Adam compares himself to Eve. God, I only did this because the woman you gave me offered me some fruit. She's the one who messed up. I was just hungry. And then Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. When he doesn't uh, measure up, he compares himself to his brother. So hear me on this. It is impossible. It's not It's not exceedingly difficult. It's not very hard. It is impossible to be content when we compare ourselves to someone else. Because what happens? Either we measure up and we feel a little bit good about ourselves, but we instantly judge and bring someone else down, or we don't measure up and we feel terrible about ourselves. There was a a season in my life where I worked in uh, various places in the corporate world, mostly in marketing jobs, which is an industry, if you're familiar with it, um, that is almost entirely built on comparison. So let's analyze the 18 to 35-year-old demographic to determine which ad performs better for this product. And so the ads for this product, they force you to compare yourself and your life to whoever is in the ad. Is my life better than this model's life or this athlete's life? If it's not, maybe I should consider drinking sugary soft drinks. Maybe that will help. And so when I worked in these marketing positions, I was constantly comparing myself to other people. And uh, my, my employers were constantly comparing me to them as well. And so I had, I had one marketing job where I was literally competing with my fellow employees for work. So two to three of us would spend hours developing these elaborate concepts and we would pitch them to a client. And so if the client chose my concept, I was rewarded with work. But if the client chose another employee's concept, then I lost work. And so you can imagine how this 
impacts your sense of contentment. And so I started to do well, but then another employee was always doing better than I was. And, and there was a time where I got fed up with some of this and I started comparing myself to people outside of my job. And there was a, a guy I knew who said at his job, he got unlimited vacation days. Sure, he worked 70 to 80 hours a week, but those unlimited vacation days were sweet. And so I started to work where he worked. And guess what? It was miserable. Turns out working somewhere because you compare and envy the life of someone else is a horrible idea. So the last problem that we're going to talk about today before looking at the solution is busyness. So of the three issues, this one is the biggest. And if I'm honest, it's also the most convicting. Of each of these problems that we looked at today, if we consider them enemies, busyness, we need to consider the arch enemy of contentment. This is the arch nemesis, the one that thwarts contentment at every possible turn. So picture in your mind a person who you think is content, someone who is alive today. How busy is that person? Tyler Stanton in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, which is really good, by the way, he talks about a study done by Michael Zigarelli of Messiah University. And he did a five-year study of 20,000 Christians in the United States. So this is a really big study. And they identified that busyness was the number one distraction from life with God. Busyness. And then this is what Michael Zigarelli said. He said, it may be the case that one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to, two, God becoming more marginalized in the Christian's lives, which leads to, three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and the cycle begins again. Man, I was convicted when I read that. And then Zigarelli goes on to say, statistically, the most common professions to get caught up in this vicious cycle are doctors, lawyers, and pastors. Wait a minute, that can't be right. Surely, surely that's a misprint or something. Surely pastors don't struggle with busyness, at least not good pastors, right? A good pastor friend of mine, um, he meets regularly with an accountability partner. And you know what the first question that his accountability partner asks him is? Have you had a full 24 hours off work this week? Now, I don't say this for sympathy for pastors or to point out that a lot of pastors actually work hard, even though we only work on Sundays, or to complain about what, what we get to do as pastors. I am genuinely humbled and honored to serve as a pastor. I could have done a lot of other things, and I did for a season. But I say this to reinforce this point, that knowledge doesn't defeat discontentedness. Knowledge doesn't defeat discontentedness. If you were to ask any pastor to exegete Philippians 4, all of them would give you a great response. But if you then ask any pastor how busy they were that week, they might lower their head in response. 
A common refrain from pastors I know is, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough in my family. I'm not doing enough in my church. And so it's, it's one thing to know the solution to a problem. It's an entirely other thing to actually live out that solution. And so many of us think that, okay, how do I do this? Uh, maybe if I'm more productive, that's going to solve the issue, right? If, if I'll be more content if I have more time. And so in order to have more time, I have to be more efficient, more productive. And so maybe technology can help me automate some of my tasks so that um, I can be freed up to do other things. In the 50s and 60s, America was automating everything. And there were dishwashers and washing machines and automated tasks. Uh, these were all becoming kind of commonplace. And so again, in Tyler Stanton's book, he, he references a Senate subcommittee that in 1967, they predicted that by 1985, the average American would work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year because of all the leisure time, all this new technology was going to free up in our lives. Well, in reality, we know that the average time people spend on leisure has decreased since the 80s. And it's not even the fact that we're given less time, given less vacation days. We're actually taking less vacation days. There's a chart here that shows the decline in Americans taking vacation days since the 70s. And we thought that having all this extra technology was going to free up our time. We thought maybe having a smartphone in our pocket connected to the internet so we can check our email whenever we want, that was going to free up more time for us. But that hasn't worked either. In 2016, there was a study that found that the average iPhone user touches their iPhone 2,617 times a day. And, and they stare at their screen for an average of two and a half hours over 76 sessions. And then three years later, they did the same study, and those numbers doubled. And then over the pandemic, it also went up. And so Tyler Stanton, he noted, uh, man, this is so good. In, instead of slowing down and harnessing technology to free up leisure time, we now suffer from what mental health professionals call hurry sickness. It's a behavioral pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiety. And the scary thing about busyness is that it's so normal, right? Every, everyone that I know is extraordinarily busy. Busyness doesn't just affect adults. Kids are affected. Our kids are in seemingly hundreds of activities. And we as parents, we're, we're scrambling to take them from one thing to the next. And then we kind of look around at other parents. I'm in the same boat. And all the other parents are doing the same thing. And we think, I guess this is just how we're living right now. It, it seems insane, but I guess this is how we do things. And then kids grow up in this kind of hurry sickness culture, and it's instilled in them that they're supposed to just kind of rush from thing to thing. And because why? Busy people are important people, right? So if you aren't busy, what are you doing with your life? Dallas Willard was once asked, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? And I love his response. He famously responded, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now this has inspired many to take a hard look at the constant state of hurry and hustle in our society. John Mark Comer, he wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of, uh, of, of Hurry. Uh, I almost said The Ruthless Elimination of Curry, which is a totally different thing. <laughs> totally different thing. Um, Christian author, author Jefferson Bethke wrote a book called To Hell with the Hustle, and they started a podcast called Fight, Hustle, and Hurry. And in these episodes, they talk about slowing down, 
about saying no and about embracing obscurity instead of fame. So all of this is to say that busyness and contentment are just not compatible. But I wanna be careful here. So, so hear what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. I'm not encouraging a lack of work. I'm not encouraging laziness. I'm not saying that we should all stop working, move to Southern France and join a colony of monks. What I am saying is that busyness easily distracts us from contentment. And because busyness is so normalized, it it gets really easy for us to get sucked in to this hurry sickness and then not even realize that we have a problem, pastors included. I have normalized hurry sickness to the point that it seems weird to me when I have a period of time that I don't know what I'm supposed to do there. I don't have, I don't have it blocked out. So I was, I was super convicted researching and writing this to the point that I wasn't even sure how comfortable I'd be giving it. So hopefully it makes sense and we all realize the issues here that we have three problems. We have three enemies of contentment. There's the always next, never now, or I can't wait. There's comparison and there's busyness. So what's the solution? God, give us a solution, please. So turn with me to Philippians 4, 9 to 13. This is what Paul says. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Do any of you, after you read that, think, Paul, just tell us, enough with the riddles, man. Like, tell us what the secret is. What do we need to do? How can we learn the secret of facing hunger and plenty, abundance and need? If Paul learned it, we can learn it, right? So how can we be content in any situation? It just sounds impossible. And just on our own, it is. If I try to just achieve contentment and the contentment that Paul is talking about here that doesn't depend on circumstances, if I try to just do that on my own, by myself, I'm going to fail. So Paul doesn't give us a step-by-step answer here, which some of us I think would appreciate, but he does provide godly wisdom throughout this letter. So we know that Paul, he didn't write this letter to Philippi with chapters and verses. The the Philippians would have read starting in chapter one. So they would have gotten all of the context before getting to this section. And so what we're gonna do is take a look at each of those problems and and apply them to some different sections in Philippians, uh, chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three. And so here's, here's problem one. Always next, never now. I can't wait. So what's the problem? We don't really know how to live our lives. We don't know how to follow the advice of Jesus, not to worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. And and we, we try to reach into the future, but we can't do that. So how does Paul tell us to live? What does he say about living in the book of Philippians? 
Well, if you're, if you're in Philippians, you can t- turn back a couple pages to Philippians 1. This is Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you and that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for faith in the gospel. How am I to live a life of contentment? For me to live is Christ. Let your life be worthy of the gospel. And you know what? Death is even better. Someday it's going to take us all, but before that happens, we're gonna live for Christ. We're not gonna live for the next vacation. We're not gonna live for the next car or the next promotion or the next retirement or, or whatever it is in our mind, the next happiness staircase. For me, for us to live is Christ. Problem two, comparison. What, what is the problem? I can't be content because I'm always comparing myself to other people. And I either think I'm better than them or worse than them, but either way, I'm not content. So does Philippians address this problem? I think you know it does. So we started in chapter one, now we're gonna be in chapter two. So you can turn one, one page over, Philippians chapter two. This is starting in verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now it's really hard to look down on others when we consider them to be more significant than we are. It's pretty hard to think that I am better than someone else if I'm doing nothing from selfish ambition. Furthermore, our example here is Christ. Have the mindset of Christ, Paul says. He didn't count equality, Jesus didn't, with God as a thing to be grasped. This is incredible. He humbled himself to the point of an excruciating death on the cross. And does Jesus go through this whole ordeal when he is a human, pain after pain, suffering after suffering, all of this so that we could be stuck in a state of discontentment because we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. No, of course not. So problem three is busyness. What's the problem? Constant distraction. We literally are too busy for God. Our minds are constantly set on the next objectives, rushing to the next thing, hurrying just to survive, hustling because we think that's how we're supposed to live. We have hurry sickness. So what does Paul tell the church? This is in chapter three. So you you were in two, now you're in three. Brothers, this is starting in uh, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, 
of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself." Our citizenship is not on earth. We don't need to follow the patterns and customs and rules that are prevalent here, even though others seem to be doing that. Our minds don't need to be set on earthly things. Others are going to set them on earthly things, on hurry and hustle and busyness, and and their minds literally can't focus on anything else because there isn't time. But our minds are to be set on Christ who will transform our lowly body to become like his glorious body by the power that enabled him even to subject all things to himself. And so even time is subject to Christ. Our schedule is subject to Christ. Our busy lives are to be subject to Christ. Okay, that sounds neat, right? That sounds great. But, but what is it? What is, what is the secret If you could boil the secret of contentment down to one thing, one sentence, what would it be? And that's such an American question to ask, right? It's like asking, how can I get physically healthy in one sentence? I I want you to boil it down to one tiny thing because I don't have time for complex answers. I don't have time for um, anything that's outside of uh, my realm of possibility to understand here. Just simplify it for us. I'm too busy. I'm too distracted to fit anything beyond one sentence in my mind. So tell me, what is it? Well, in, in chapter four, um, Paul gives such, there's so much good stuff in there. He talks about anxiety. He talks about our thought life. But there are things that Paul talks about more than others. There is one thing that Paul repeats in the book of Philippians more than anything else. And now the secret of contentment is not just repeating an axiom over and over. But again, there is something that Paul repeats more than he repeats anything else. What is that? Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Look at how many times in this short epistle that Paul mentions the word rejoice. We're just going to scroll through a couple of these verses in every chapter. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Philippians is a short book, but the word rejoice is used nine times in the ESV. And at least once in every chapter, Paul says, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's like he's giving us a a secret code here. So how do we do it? How do we rejoice in the Lord? Well, different people will respond differently to that question. Can you, I want to define rejoice as kind of this sense of exceeding gladness that we have exceeding gladness in in anything and so Paul says to rejoice in the Lord how do we have exceeding gladness in the Lord can we experience exceeding gladness anywhere we are well Paul can even in prison so Paul was imprisoned at least three times that we know about and he was beaten he was falsely accused he was betrayed this man had a hard life and so there's a, there's a debate actually about which imprisonment the book of Philippians was written during. And so, but most think it was written during this imprisonment in Rome, which happened towards the end of his life. 
And so there's a prison in Rome that's called Mamertine Prison. And it's still standing today. You can still visit it. And this is a prison that many thought held both the Apostle Paul and Peter. And so we've got a photo here. This is the interior of a, a prison cell at Mamertine Prison. Can you imagine in that space writing, rejoice in the Lord always? What is there to rejoice about there? Apparently, Paul had a practice of rejoicing in prison. In Acts chapter, 15, chapter 16, this is a different time that Paul is thrown in prison. Listen to the first thing that he and Silas do when they are in prison. So this is the setup. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and they gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. And this is what Paul and Silas do. About midnight, Paul and Silas started whining and complaining for all of the ways that God had betrayed them. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing psalms to God after being beaten with rods. And the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And the jailer, when he woke, he saw that the prison doors were open and he drew out his sword. He was about to kill himself. He supposed that the prisoners had all escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell, he fell down before Paul and Silas and he, he brought him out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Yes, rejoicing in the Lord personally helps you. It prevents discontentment. It's very hard to be discontent when you are exceedingly glad in the Lord and when you rejoice in who he is. But sometimes your rejoicing when you experience the prisons of life have a dramatic effect on people around you. When Paul and Silas had problems and they were imprisoned, they rejoiced. When the jailer had problems, he wanted to commit suicide. He, and he doesn't do it because Paul stops him, but then he wants what Paul has. Man, I don't understand this. How can you rejoice in prison? How can you be content here in prison? It doesn't make sense. Paul, please tell me what it is. Please tell me the secret. And you may be asked in your life to rejoice in order that someone around you is going to take notice and say, why are you doing that? Now, again, I want to be careful here. There, there was a time to mourn, a time to grieve, and Jesus wept when Lazarus died. So I'm not suggesting lunacy, that we kind of inappropriately have the wrong emotions at a funeral or something like that. But, but I am suggesting that even in the prison of life, there is a reason to rejoice. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that somehow as Christians, we can have this strange dichotomy happening within us that we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, full of sorrow, yet always rejoicing. And does that sound impossible? 
It is. It absolutely is. And and what I am suggesting as a primary remedy for discontentment is completely impossible for you and for me alone. But what does Paul say at the end of Philippians 4 in verse 13? Right after saying that he has found the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, he says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's through Christ he can do all things, not through his own strength, not through willpower, not through a 10-step process. He can face hunger and need, abundance and plenty through the power of Christ. And oftentimes, this verse gets lifted out of context and used to apply to all kinds of nonsense, like I can dunk a basketball when I'm only 4'11", because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but this is uh, way out of context. The point is, we just don't have the strength But through Christ, contentment is not only possible, it's beautiful. Imagine living a life that isn't marked by kind of this can't wait vortex, that isn't marked by the comparison trap or or hurry sickness. Isn't that the kind of life that you want to live? Me too. And I'm not there yet. I need help from Christ, obviously but also from my brothers and sisters. And so if you're looking for some tangible ways to start, here are a couple things to try. Obviously, number one, we know to rejoice in the Lord. God, I'm satisfied in you today. God, I'm, I just wanna be here with you right now. I don't wanna be anywhere else. I'm grateful for this place and space and time. I rejoice in you. I'm satisfied in you. Number two, try, try to give up something that has a hold of you. Recently, I noticed that Facebook had a hold on me. I wasn't posting anything, but I was checking it all the time. And talk about a place that is filled with temptations to compare yourself to others, to experience a can't wait vortex, to make yourself busier than you need to be because you eventually have to make up for the time that you were wasting scrolling through uh, Facebook. So a few months ago, I started fasting from it. It was was slow at first. I I only checked it on, on Sundays and Wednesdays. But then eventually I just stopped checking it entirely. I realized I didn't need it. It had a hold of me and I needed to do something about it. And can I tell you, my state of contentment is better today than it was before. Our rooted group right now, we are fasting for a prayer experience that we're having this afternoon. Some people are giving up food. Some are giving up social media or Netflix or their phone. And so when the hunger pains hit or when we're tempted to comfort, comfort ourselves with our phone or with Netflix or Facebook, we're encouraged to pray, God, I love you more than food. God, I love you more than the comfort of Netflix. God, I love you more than likes on social media. Fasting has a way of starving our fleshly desire so that we can feed our soul. And comfort is not the same as contentment. So fasting helps us to clarify our contentment. And last one, commit to a challenge or a new discipline. Contentment is really hard. You have to know yourself. You have to know what gets in the way. And so Dallas Willard, he famously tried these different challenges. And so there was a time when a student was in his class, in his philosophy class, and they're spouting um, all kinds of erroneous things. And so instead of correcting him, Willard said, okay, class dismissed, time is over. And someone approached him later and said, why didn't you correct this student who was obviously saying wrong things? And Willard said, 
I'm practicing the discipline of not having to say the last word. (laughs) Other times, he would practice the discipline of not being irritated. So a situation would come up that would normally irritate Willard. And instead of getting instantly irritated, he had already committed, okay, I'm, 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 I'm not going to get irritated in this, this week. I'm going to commit this week. This week, I'm not going to get irritated. And so when the situation would arise, he would say, I'm committing to the discipline of not being irritated. And so he wouldn't be irritated there. Commit to a new discipline or a challenge. We're going we're gonna to suggest a few more um, on our website. We post um, on our, our uh, message page, there's life group questions Um, each week and so we'll post some more suggestions for that this week but friends we can we can do this we can do it together you aren't alone in this you can join other brothers and sisters in Christ in the struggle we're all on the same journey together I'm on your side and I hope you're on mine as well I need all the help I can get and so if it sounds impossible to live a life of contentment it is but with Christ all things are possible let's pray Uh, God, the the only way that any of this can work is if you do something miraculous in us. God, if if, if you magnify your desires and help us to shrink our own. God, if you you help us to, to overcome all of the ways that we tend to get in the way. God, the ways that we compare ourselves, the ways that we can't wait, the, the ways that we are overly complicated and busy and hurry and hustle. God, I, I pray that you'll show us what our next step is. God, we, we aren't there yet and we can't do it all at once, but there's one little thing that we can do. God, show us what that is. Help us to see, even right now, I pray that you'll show something to each of us. God, what is one thing we can do right now to help us to live a life of contentment, a life of joy, of exceeding gladness in you that doesn't depend on the circumstances or anything that's happening around us. God, again, there's no way we can do this on our own. And so thank you for the gift of Christ that, that through him, all things are subject. And so we, we submit our schedule to you. We submit our time to you. We submit our thought life to you. We submit all of the things that, that tend to bind us God, set us free. Set us free from the, from the tyranny of, of, the, of the world, of, of having to measure up in all of the different areas that we think we need to. Set us free from that, God. I pray that you'll, you'll release us and that we'll leave feeling encouraged that we can do this. Help us. It's in your name I pray.